0: Daily News and Analysis. We keep you informed and inspired.
1: This is World Today.
2: Hello and welcome to World Today. I'm Ding Han in Beijing. Coming up: China sends special envoy for a Middle East de-escalation mission. And we will hear from a former project manager of the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor about the achievements of the Flagship BRI program over the past decade. The United States is seeking to tackle the so-called loopholes in its chip restrictions against China. And Australia has overwhelmingly rejected a plan to give greater political and social rights to its indigenous people. So if you want to listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, download our podcast by searching World Today. China has announced that the country's special envoy for the Middle East will visit relevant countries in the region this week to help facilitate a ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war. In a recent media interview, Chinese envoy Zhai Jing reiterated that force is never the way to solve the problems, saying the only way to create the necessary conditions for a political settlement is to put an end to the violence as soon as possible. Zhai has already met with representatives of the Arab League in China for emergency session on the Gaza crisis. He pledged during that meeting that China will continue to provide humanitarian aid to the Palestinian people. So, joining us now on the line is Dr. Wang Jing, associate professor and a Middle East expert with Northwest University in Xi'an, China. Thank you very much for joining us, Professor Wang.
0: My pleasure.
2: So, do you think um, this latest news we're talking we're talking about here? Is a sign that China is deepening its involvement in facilitating a, a, a possible or potential uh, ceasefire in the Gaza crisis? Uh, I think, uh,
0: actually, I think China is actually contributing our own
2: efforts for
0: the facilitation of uh, peace between Israel and Gaza. Uh, actually, uh, China's stance has been always clear that uh, the, the absence of Israeli uh, Palestinian peace uh should, could be should be perceived as the very deeply rooted uh reason for for the violence or for the tragedies and disasters between both israeli civilians and the palestinian civilians and violence and war uh, uh, harms only the civilians especially the the israeli civilians and as well as the palestinian civilians so no one is should be considered as a winner and China has already uh consistently called for uh quorum, uh called for uh rational uh as well as called for uh the re- restraint uh of the related parties, especially uh of the Israeli side hopes that uh, the ceasefire should uh, could be uh, immediately reached between the different sides. And also China also calls the very urgent international assistance to and especially humanitarian assistance to the uh, civilians, especially in the Gaza Strip, because now Gaza has already been under the blockade for a decade. Mm-hmm. And also the Gaza uh, civilians, they suffered from the shortage of clean water, the food and the electricity and other daily necessities. This is a very disaster. And also China that it's highly necessary uh, for the international uh, society, especially in the United States, to reorganize uh, the, the 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 conference of Israel between Israelis and the Palestinians to uh, to seek the opportunities of uh, mm. restore the eternal peace in the future between the two uh, between the two sides. So I think that is why it's a very time of moment uh, when the Arab states, as well as all the Middle Eastern states and also international society, they hope that China can do. Uh, to to do things and to to help to pacify the tension as well to 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 insecure, to insecure the, the 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 very frontiers between Israel and Gaza mm-hmm. and that that Chinese special envoy Ji and well Chinese government will show our willingness and also we voice our claims as well we hope to contribute more to the peace process between the two sides.
2: Mm. Now, uh, peace talks between uh, Palestinians and Israel is of course one aspect. Uh, in the meantime, Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi on Friday called for convening a more operative, influential, and broad-based international peace conference under the framework of the UN as quickly as possible. Now, do you think that is likely to happen? And by the way, why do you think China believes that the UN has a kind of, you know, indispensable or irreplaceable role to play here in the question of the Palestinians? Uh,
0: I think uh, I think maybe we cannot make make sure because that depends on a lot of other factors. So uh, I I hope we hope so that uh, the UN special uh, meeting could be convened as soon as possible uh for the facilitating the, the ceasefire between israel and the Palestinians in Gaza as well as help the local people there, so we hope we both we both hope as well I think the majority of states in the international society hope uh, hope that the special conference could be organized uh in, in the u n uh Meanwhile, we know that the United Nations always plays a very crucial role in the first peace process between Israel and the Palestinians, and also that uh, the uh, United Nations, their role are always being respected and recognized between the different conflicting uh, sides. And meanwhile, uh, and meanwhile, we can we also need to 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 know, so to stress that the United Nations, United Nations' chapters as well, United Nations' several resolutions over the Israeli and Palestinian. Uh, the issue
3: uh,
0: has already become the very principles, the underlying principles for the settlement of the, 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 the peace process between the two sides. So that is why uh, China maintains that the uh, United Nations role should be uh, highlighted, and the United Nations special conference will uh, contribute a lot uh, to the future peace between Israelis and Palestine.
2: Hmm. So Wang Yi has actually also said that really, when we talk about the root cause of the ongoing crisis right now, it is really this long delay in terms of the realization of the Palestinians, let's say, aspiration to establish a kind of independent state, and also uh, this, this kind of failure to address or to readdress those historical you know injustices that have been imposed onto the palestinians what is your thought uh, in this regard and how would you how would you make of this perceived sympathy for the palestinians uh, on on the part of uh, the chinese government of course
0: uh, china's uh, china's stance uh, was on the one hand very uh, very precise about understanding over the understanding of the Palestinian issue, and on the other hand, actually the the the, the stance uh, are 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 shared by the majority facing the Palestinian society because a lot of others is also considered uh, in that way uh, because uh, the Palestinian issues, especially the Israeli Palestinian conflict, they are they on the one hand resulted from a, a lot of other factors. For example, Israel will was defined so called the, the terrorist group of Hamas, and also Hamas will uh, re- reject the legitimacy of Israeli government. But, uh, but the very deeply rooted problem of all these uh, all these negative factors could be attributed to the absence uh, to the absence of Israeli Palestinian just and long uh, long lasting peace. Uh, they, they, on the one hand, there, there has been no peace talks. Uh, for for the decades, I mean, the last round of peace talks between Israel and Palestinians occurred in 2014. That has been 10 years ago, nearly 10 years ago. And on the other hand, the, there has no uh, there has been no uh, clear mechanism for the settlements of, uh, of the Israel and Palestinians for the lasting and just a peace between the two sides as well as from the international society. So that is why China's uh, stance is very timely as well as very clear and precise. And hope to bring the two sides together again, with the aim to helping the two sides uh, for the internal as well uh, internal as well as uh, the the lasting peace, and also to hope to provide more assistance to the to the peace process between the two sides.
2: Mm. So we understand, in principle, China has been very clear and unequivocal uh, in terms of showing or voicing its support to the two-state solution, and that's really a sort of international consensus. Even the Biden administration of the United States uh, in principle supports this two-state solution, right? So in your understanding, what do you think is the prerequisite for the international community to be able to reach a broader set of consensus on the basis of this uh, two-state solution?
0: I think the I think maybe maybe the most important thing that uh, should be taken into consideration. Yes, the international consensus is important, but the, maybe the most important thing that matters or uh, determines is the willingness or the or the consensus between Israel and the Palestinians. Because actually, the, the international society's consensus they are just the external forces, the external motivations to encourage the both sides to reach peace. But the really thing that determines is the willingness and the trust, as well as, uh, as, well as the determinations of their both sides. I mean, really they need to make concession, and the Palestinians, they also make the concession. Uh, so their relations, their trust, their bilateral connections are the vital and the cru- most crucial for the future peace between the two sides. But what we witness now is on the one hand now a very weakening uh, international uh, society before, even before this uh, round of the conflict between societies emerged. But now the United States they didn't they, they haven't got because they haven't got any uh, organized any uh, round of the peace talks before Israeli and Palestinians. Their absence for the peace process actually strongly weakened the confidence of the both sides uh, for the peace process. And we, on on the other hand, the Israeli and Palestinians they have their own internal. Pro- ex- Internal problems is really their governments are shadowed, are shattered, and also the Palestinians' different division, yeah. divisions between different factions are also there that have become a major blockade, uh, obstacle for the for the peace possibilities. So I think in the future maybe more encouragement from international society and more focus, especially from the United States, they should uphold their responsibilities for bringing the two sides together and to for the. For the seeking of possibilities of peace uh, of peace in the future,
2: mm, at least the U.S. holds a large amount of leverage onto the Israelis. That's for sure. Now, this is the last question before we let you go, Doctor Wan. I mean, China set up its uh, special envoy for the Middle East, this particular you know diplomatic position, back in the year two thousand and two, which means that actually China has been involved. In a sort of mediation between the Israeli and our peace process, since then for more than twenty years already. Now, do you think China has made positive contribution, realistically speaking, in this regard over the years? Of course, China.
0: China's role is always, uh, as as you mentioned, China's role is always uh, positive and will continue to be positive. Uh, because on the one hand, China's stance is clear and precise that for uh, China's maintains the, the, the key to the, to the peace between Israel and Palestinians should be uh, the establishment of the, uh, the independent Palestinian state with the capital of East Jerusalem under the, principle, under the principle of two-state solution. This is very key. And on the other hand, over – during the past years, uh, there has been a lot of the, the crisis and the conflict between the Palestinian and Israel. And China always stands with the justice always stands with the right side, always stands with the possibilities of peace in the future. So I think China will continue to contribute our positive uh, uh, the efforts to the future peace process between the two sides and also will make great endeavors in the process of in the facilitating the, 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 the one-day realization of the peace between the Israelis and the Palestinians in the future.
2: Mm. Thank you very much. That was Dr. Wang Jing, Associate Professor with Northwest University in Xi'an, China. You are listening to World Today. Stay tuned. China is hosting the third Belt and Road Forum for International Cooperation this week in Beijing, with the BRI marking its 10 year anniversary. During the past 10 years, the China Pakistan Economic Corridor has served as one of the flagship projects under the BRI. The corridor is aiming to promote connectivity across Pakistan through a network of infrastructure and is expected to further boost the economic growth of Pakistan. Now for more about China-Pakistan cooperation under the BRI, my colleague Do Hongyu spoke with Dr. Hussain Daut, Honorary Director of the Center for BRI and Regional Studies and a former Project Director of China-Pakistan Economic Corridor.
4: Dr. Hassan, among all the projects of the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, the port of Wadar is often called the crown jewel for this corridor. What was it like in the past and what is it like right now?
3: It's a very, very good question. Uh, It is almost the same story as we have for Shenzhen. People engage in fishing only. The only source of living is fishing, and perhaps some tourists if they are traveling. Uh, less developed, not connected with the urban centers, and and very close to Iran, but uh, not connected with any part of the or part of the country, both inwards and also uh, eastward and westward. So, what the transformation that actually has come in is because the project and the city has actually come in the forefront and in the discussion, both at the national and international level. And sometimes this becomes challenging also, but this is also rewarding in a sense that the infrastructure being built through China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, like the airport, which is going to be inaugurated next year, inshallah. And also the vocational training center, the university, the port itself, locals are employed and also through the universities. This is very useful in a in a way that people of Gawadar has now have now actually realized the potential of their great city. Uh, They are now looking at various avenues to uh, to increase their livelihood in a socio-economic sense.
4: There are many underdeveloped regions along the CPEC route. How has this corridor changed these areas?
3: I think when you develop infrastructure and again there's an old Chinese saying if you want to become rich build roads, So I think when you create uh, infrastructure, which is essentially climate resilient, connecting rural economy with urban economy, we are a country which is heavily dependent on our agriculture sector. And agriculture is essentially a rural-based working. So based on that, for us to connect that, that part of the economy with main urban centers is, is essential. The other aspect is that, one of the naturally endowed region is our western, western provinces, uh, Balochistan and Khyber Pakhtunkhwa, which have immense potential as far as the mining sector is concerned. These areas are less developed. Even Gawadar at a time was less developed, which is now getting towards prosperity. So when you develop this infrastructure, you build roads, railways, highways. Uh, this connectivity becomes better.
4: There's an analogy that. The China-Pakistan Economic Corridor is the first chapter in the symphony of the Belt and Road Initiative. So as a pivotal zone of the BRI, what messages can this corridor convey to the rest of the world?
3: For me, Pakistan is the buckle of the belt. We remain the center point as, as we speak. Our connectivity between China has improved significantly and it is going to improve further with the railway project that you mentioned coming up, connecting the northern areas of Pakistan with the uh, with the southern part, and then the speed of railway getting much better. I think uh, for Pakistan to actually benefit from from this, I, I, what we need is is a bit of more support from China in terms of uh, helping us showcase uh, China Pakistan Economic Corridor in the rest of the world. The other aspect that I believe in, referring to your question, I think the more people, they come together, more people-to-people interaction takes place, more Pakistani scholars go to China and Chinese scholars come. This provides the, us to actually benefit from the true spirit of Asian Silk Road. And this is the spirit we would like to take to the rest of the world. More people interaction, understanding each other culture and working within their own characteristics, Chinese working in their own Chinese characteristics. We are working in our own, but towards a better, more harmonized manner. And in the way that uh, President Xi would like to put it uh, as a community of uh, shared uh, prosperity. And in that case, uh, we can actually help the world to get better, more peaceful. I think CPAC and Belt and Road uh, Initiative demonstrate that if there is commitment a positive commitment and trust between leadership, Uh, anything can happen. So this is the message perhaps we would like to take to rest of the world, to Afghanistan, to to Central Asia, which is in in need of uh, regionally integrated countries and perhaps how the investment and economies of ASEAN countries are getting closer to China. We would like to follow the same way and perhaps become a better place for more investment to flow from other countries.
4: The Belt and Road Initiative has been met with skepticism and criticism from some Western discourse. One typical example is the debt trap allegation. As the former project director of CPEC, how would you respond to it?
3: For me, uh, in the past 10 years, I think this narrative has actually outlived its life. Uh, I mean, if you keep repeating something which is baseless, still it has its life, you know, and it dies automatically. So for me now, it has no significance. I think the overall investment regime uh, within the concept of BRI and China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, the only area where... Pakistan has actually asked for uh, for loan is in the development of infrastructure which has been very very suitable for Pakistan if we compare it any other bilateral loan that we have so i think this this notion of debt trap is is false not just false but also not based on true statistics you know, While we have so many friends within BRI and outside, we also have certain people who may not be happy, certain countries and regions which may not be happy with the development of our region and also development of Belt and Road Initiative in China. Perhaps for them, they look at China as their rival. But for us, China is a true trusted friend and we would like to work more. We would like more investment coming in the second phase. So I think this notion um, of debt trap is false. And perhaps uh, they should find some other narrative to challenge BRI. This has outlived its life.
4: What are some of the other challenges that are faced by the China-Pakistan economic corridor?
3: I think the challenges generally are from, in terms of capacity, human capacity to to work on new technologies, especially A. B is uh, perhaps uh, regulation and understanding of regulations. Uh, sometimes we find Pakistan over-regulated in terms of investment attraction in some sectors like the mining sector and in few sectors, we are very good like manufacturing, agriculture, we are we are quite attractive, but say in mining, which is going to be one of the major areas of investment in, in the next phase. In order to have seamless trade, these regulations should have synergy. Uh, we also have the challenge of continuity of policy because Pakistan is a democratic country government change after five years and sometimes earlier also because of uh, diplomatic reasons. So I think now at this time, after 10 years, we understand the challenges. We are aware of the challenges and from also where these challenges stem from. So I I, I think we are better placed, better connected, understanding each other's way of work and concerns. So next phase is going to be more uh, more interesting, uh, more profitable. I wish I can say less challenging, but maybe challenging also, but those challenges can be addressed.
4: As the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor approaches its 10th anniversary, what are your expectations for its future?
3: I think the expectations and also the challenges are, are high. The expectation is that we would like more investment coming from China to Pakistan, especially in agriculture, especially in science and technology, telecom sector also. Uh, perhaps even in human development sector where we need more vocational centers being built in line of what government of China has done. But maybe in private sector, they can come and work with Pakistani. We would also like to have more tourism flow from uh, China as the former head of the board of investment in one of our subnational investment regime. I had always wanted and we have prepared even prepared a strategy to how to attract more Chinese tourists coming. We want them to travel all the way to the Chinese uh, Pakistan border and enjoy and look at these beautiful places uh, as beautiful as China, but more importantly, a country where Chinese nationals and Chinese tourists are loved and respected. The third expectation I have is and uh, uh, request to Chinese government is to support us in our agriculture sector based on. Uh, this uh, our agriculture our, our soil is quite uh, quite good it produces variety of uh, food products and agri products even livestock is is of high quality and i think through chinese farming techniques and perhaps foot and mouth disease free zones we can actually develop fast and perhaps export to china and benefit from the free trade agreement we have between the two countries that
2: was Dr. Hasnain Daut Butt, honorary director of the Center for BRI and Regional Studies, and a former project director of the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor. We'll be back after a short break. Welcome back to World Today. I'm Ding Han in Beijing. China's foreign trade has maintained a steady upward trajectory. Customs data shows that in the first three quarters of this year, China's total imports and exports amounted to 30.8 trillion yuan, or 4.4 trillion U.S. dollars, slightly down by some 0.2% year-on-year. Exports were up by 0.6% year-on-year, while imports dipped by 1.2%. China's total goods imports and exports in September reached a new monthly high this year with trade volume amounting to 3.74 trillion yuan. In the meantime, China's consumer price index remained unchanged in September compared to a year earlier. On a monthly basis, CPI rose by 0.2% from the previous month. So for more on China's economy, my colleague Zhao Yang earlier spoke with Dr. Chen Jiahe, Chief Investment Officer with Novan Aki Technologies.
5: So Jiahe, talking about the latest trade figures, we saw a rise in exports and a slight dip in imports. So how would you interpret these numbers?
1: Well, we have seen that this changing in the export, you know, the rising of the export is somehow more important because you know import is something due to the uh, well the domestic consumption which is closely linked with the property market which is currently pretty cold. But when we see the export being rising, it's it's a very good sign because you know China has been called the world factory for a long period of time and it's still the world uh, the world's very important factory for the moment. But it's not only the factory now; I got the consumption service uh, something like that, but it's still a very important factory, so export is critical to the chinese economy. So when this export is actually turning over, it tells us that the global economy, especially the global economy uh, towards the demand of the Chinese products, has actually been increasing so that 's probably a good sign because you know the Fed has recently said it might stop the interest rate uh, rising. So that's probably a good sign for the trend of the export in the future.
5: Mm. And China's imports and exports with BRI countries in the first three quarters increased by 3.1% year on year, accounting for more than 46% of the total trade volume. So how would you explain this trend and what's the driving forces of the momentum?
1: Well, when we look at all these things, I mean, the BRI countries are uh, well, taking almost 50 percent of the trade. So that means when we look at this, uh, you know, the Chinese economic uh, future perspectives, we don't have to worry that much about the relation between China and the U.S., which is recovering these days. I mean, there has been very good signs recently we have saw between the official announcements between China and U.S., but uh, it's, it's actually for investors. We look into the long term. You know, Many people have been asking, will there be some more problem in the future? And it might possibly be because, you know, this is between the world's first and second largest economies. You know, remember the trade war between uh, U.S. and Japan back about something like 40 years ago. There has been a serious trade war for lasted for uh, like two or three decades. So, but now with this much, you know, trade of China coming from the BRI, almost 50 percent, and with the increasing of the BRI economy in the future, this will surely pass 50 percent in the next decade. So that means, uh, you know, we will have much more confidence about the uh, the trading of China, as well as you know, benefiting these countries as well. I mean, otherwise they won't be doing the trade with us.
5: Mm-hmm. And looking at China's trade, are there any remarkable trends or anything that stand out within some specific industries? For example, the electric vehicle industries. Yeah, I mean,
1: I have actually saw a chart shows that China's trade with a European country, the change of this trade in the past two decades from the year of two thousand to twenty twenty three. You can see a very dramatic change of the you know, the things that Chinese people has been exporting, uh, that has changed in these two decades and three years, you know, uh, that, Back two decades ago, we were actually exporting many, you know, uh, low-end products, you know, like shoes, clothes, furnitures, these kind of things. But now you see much more things like EVs, a solar panel, computer, mobile phone, uh, battery, all these kind of things. So you can see the value adding in these kind of export has been dramatically increased in the past two decades. I mean, if you look at for, for example, six months or one year, you don't see this dramatic change. But if you look at the picture for five, 10 years or 20 years, you see a very big change about what Chinese people are actually exporting. There's much more value adding with these products.
5: Mm. And given the international economic climate and the trade dynamics, what are your expectation prospects for the trade in the you know, latter half or the rest of the year?
1: Currently, it looks like the trend is pretty okay because the U.S., well, one of the most important things deterring the growth of the international trade is that the Fed has been rising the interest rate to counter inflation. Uh, but now with the latest uh, sign, it looks like the interest rate hiking is coming to an end. Probably there is one more hike, but it looks like for the, well, from all the evidence that we're having at the moment, it looks like the, 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 the hiking of the rate is about to end because the inflation is coming downward. Mm -hmm. So that means the global trade has a pretty good uh, positive engine behind it. Uh, Another thing is the relation between China and the U.S. You know, this also uh, influences the relate the trading relation between China and Japan, Australia and some European countries. And this relation is actually turning better if you see all the politician uh, politicians visiting the Beijing recently and all the announcements by, uh, made by the Chinese and the U.S. government. So let's hope this trend can continue. You know, everyone really wants that.
5: And also talking about the CPI, the uh, September CPI rose by 0.2% from the previous month. So what does the latest CPI tell us about?
1: Well, the good thing is that this is 0.2%. I mean, this... this well, it's actually considered as a bit low, because if you look at the uh, traditional economic series, it's really considered that uh, CPI between 1% to 25 or 3% is the most healthy. Because if you have high inflation, like what the U.S. is having last year, you know, 10% or 8%, that, that's something really definitely not good. People lose confidence with their currency. But if you have some uh, inflation that is too low, um, especially when it's below zero, you know, like Japan had in the 1990s, uh, then people will say, okay, because the money is becoming uh, worth more and more in the future, so why do I spend now? So they will deter the consumption, and the whole economy will cool down. So the most healthy inflation is considered around 2%. So this 0.2%, when we look at this, it, it's actually a bit low. I mean, the good thing is that it's not below zero. So the worst thing is that you have a CPI below zero. But this 0.2% is somewhere... Um, You know, a bit low, but not that low. But the good thing is that this actually gives more room for the Chinese policy making because you have a very low CPI. So the central bank will not be worrying too much about injecting liquidity into the market. You know, more liquidity into the market will not bring too much inflation. So this is pretty good. I mean, if you look at it from this way.
5: And let's talk about China's consumption market, Jiahe, which is very important for the country's economic growth. So what do you think are primarily fueling the consumer growth in China?
1: when you look at the consumption growth i mean it will be continually growing in the next one to two decades i'm sure of that there are a few engines behind this the first is that chinese people are having a lot of saving i mean the saving rate in china is extremely high if you compare this data with many other matured or developing economies you can you can see the chinese people save uh, save a lot of their money, so they have the money to spend. The second is that the social security system in China is becoming more and more mature, so people don't have to save that much in the future. Because you know, when you go to the hospital nowadays, if you got sick, um, you can get about eighty percent or even ninety percent of the expense from the social security system. Uh, at least sixty percent, even if you haven't been paying anything in the past, you still get like fifty to sixty percent payment from the social security system, as well as a pension. So uh, another thing is that currently the consumption is taking actually a pretty small uh, percentage of our economy. If you compare this economic structure of China, uh, United States, United Kingdom, France, you can see that Chinese people actually consume very little, uh, you know, with a percentage, uh, with a temp of percentage compared with other economies. So looking into the future, when the economy grows with more social security, people will spend more in the future. So this is actually the largest trend um, that we're we look at when we look at the economic growth in the next two or three decades.
2: My colleague Zhao Yang speaking with Chen Jiahe, Chief Investment Officer with Novan Aki Technologies. You are listening to World Today. We'll be back. The U.S. will reportedly take steps to prevent American chip makers from selling products to China that circumvent government restrictions. The new rules will be added to the sweeping restrictions on shipments of advanced chips and chip-making tools to China unveiled last year. The updates are expected this week. The Biden administration claims that the export controls are designed to keep U.S. chips and chip-making tools from strengthening China's military. China on its part has accused the United States of abusing export controls to suppress Chinese corporations. So joining us now on the line is Yao Jian, Changkun Professor of Economics with Chongqing University. Thank you very much for joining us. So what do you think has prompted the US side to update its uh, curbs and restrictions of AI chip exports to China?
6: It is not Unusually ecstatic, um, because the uh, Biden administration followed Donald Trump, or even uh, is worse than Donald Trump, in terms of dealing with China, in terms of international trade, but in particular, is um, you know technological embargo, and this restriction uh, or upgrading of the restriction policy on advanced trips to China aimed to actually uh, targeting the the high uh, the high-tech industry in in China itself. The recent uh, event of the the Huawei mobile phone, which uh, has created some sort of uh, technological shock, not only in China but also in the U.S. and the rest of the world, because the main sixty, the the uh, yes. you know, the high-end mobile phone, uh, to some extent, it included increase the technological level of manufacturing in, in China. So uh what Biden administration is trying to do is to make sure that there's further tightening of the you know the export of advanced chips to China to slow down the technological progress
2: mm-hmm. and
6: possibly aiming at cutting off uh, China's supply chain in terms of the high tech industry.
2: Hmm. Now, it's interesting to note that actually during a recent visit to China by the U.S. Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, he said in a dress at the U.S. Embassy in China here in Beijing that the United States wanted to pursue uh, re- reciprocity and fair competition in its commercial and economic links with China. Now, Professor, in real practice, do you think curbing advanced exports of chips and chip-making tools to China is a way to pursue, say, reciprocity and a fair competition?
6: I actually listened to the whole talk of Truman uh, in um, in the U.S. Embassy in Beijing. Mm. Uh, he talked about some positive things, about fair competition and also uh, mutual, mutual promotion of international trade and technological cooperation. Uh, between China and the United States, which is a positive note. But more importantly, I think he repetitively saying that China is is, is stealing the U.S. technology, China is forcing the U.S. Uh, you know, many spectral firms in China to transfer technology. A uh, lot of accusation is the traditional way of the U.S. Uh, trying to use the excuse of the so-called protecting of the intellectual property law, but the reality is actually to uh, suppress China's high-end manufacturing technological development. So even Truman himself, although he, does, he did actually talk about some positive uh, cooperation and competition, but in, in his mind, and also in most minds of the U.S. politicians, they have a fairly, uh, you know, uh you know uh, mm-hmm. the, the mindset that china is is not a country that they can cooperate on an equal basis particularly in terms of technological uh development and intellectual property,
2: mm-hmm. which
6: uh, on the chinese side is actually guantless because china actually massively welcome uh u s manufacturers into china uh they are, each year the u s manufacturing china and other Commercial operations earn uh, hundreds of billions of U.S. dollars in terms of uh, sales revenue. Particularly, you know, the automobile industries, uh, the electrical industry, uh, aerospace industry, and so on and so forth. So the the U.S. industry actually have benefit. U.S. multinationals have benefit greatly uh, due to the huge market potential of China. Mm. But uh, I think in in the Chinese side, the U.S. Uh, politicians may not agree. Uh, but the Chinese people, most people, believe that the U.S. want to dominate the the, the high end manufacturing and high tech sector, so that they can monopolize the abnormal profit that have been generated by, for example, like Apple, uh, by you know Microsoft, by uh, lots of uh, you know internet companies, which. Are actually highly profitable, mm. uh, which is due to the US administration and protection.
2: Mm. Now, a few senior Biden administration officials, apart from this latest uh, Chuck Schumer's uh, China visit, uh, these Biden administration officials have met with their Chinese counterparts in recent months. And this is really seen by many people as diplomatic efforts by both sides to try to stabilize their ties. So do you think this latest round of rules we are talking about today will risk, um, you know, adding complexities to uh, the efforts on the diplomatic front? It would
6: certainly complicate the mutual trust issue. I mean, the the us china relationship has been uh, going to the nadir in terms of, uh, a, you know, mutual trust. And um, I think the recent delegation, various well, delegations from the United States to China, changed some sort of uh, a positive signal that um, the two countries can still cooperate. But in half reality, I think the U.S., uh, a, 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 you know, intrinsic, intrinsic target is to dominate the high-tech industry. And if there's anything that competes from any other country, apart from China, but other countries as well, the U.S. would do everything possible uh, to protect the sale the interest. And this is the the problem. This is the problem, the lack of willingness, the lack of, uh, you know, ability to cooperate for mutual benefit is the, the concept, uh, you know, uh, understanding on the Chinese side, not only the government but also the intellectuals and the ordinary people. If you see the website communication, uh, lots of are uh, you know discussing and comment. It's all about it.
2: Mm-hmm. Now, Professor Yao, before we let you go, let's talk about a particular case briefly. Last year, U.S. government restrictions kept NVIDIA, this U.S.-based company, from shipping two of its most advanced AI chips to Chinese customers. But later, NVIDIA ended up releasing two new variants for the Chinese market. Of course, these variants were less sophisticated, but somehow they can get around the U.S. export controls. Now, it looks like even these new variants of, these com- of this company will be restricted as well. So how big a blow do you think these new rules will deal to a company like NVIDIA, briefly?
6: Yeah, I, I think there's a, a mutual uh, you know, humming process in the, in, the, in the U.S. policy. On the one hand, it aims to slow down China's technological progress and the high-tech industry development. On the other hand, it actually restricts market accessibility for the U.S. multinational company. So this company, the U.S. company, will certainly suffer as a result. So in the end, who will win and who will get the benefit is still
2: unknown. Thank you very much. That was Dr. Yao Shujie, Changkong Professor of Economics with Chongqing University. You are listening to World Today. Stay tuned. You're listening to World Today. I'm Dinghan in Beijing. Australia has rejected a proposal to recognize the country's indigenous population in the country's constitution. The proposal was pitched by Prime Minister Anthony Albanese as a -a once-in-a-generation opportunity to improve the lives of the original inhabitants. The proposal would have enshrined an advisory body on indigenous affairs Caught quote unquote the voice in the country's constitution. Now, with more than three quarters of the vote counted, over 60% have said no to the proposal at the national level. So, joining us now on the line is Professor Joseph Syracuse, Dean of Global Futures with Curtin University in Australia. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. So, You know, population-wise, we understand the indigenous population make up some 3% of the Australian overall population. Uh, That's a basic fact. Now, some people say the failure of this high-profile referendum represents a setback in Australia's attempt or effort to deal with its past and current treatment of the indigenous people. What is your take?
7: Well, it, it is a setback for them and for the country. Uh, uh, there are 26 million Australians, 980,000 Aboriginal and Torres Island Islanders, what they call now First, uh, First Peoples. That's sort of taken from Canada and the American experience. They're almost always called uh, Indigenous or Aboriginals. And um, there, there was a, a concern among Aboriginal leadership And, you know, keep in mind, there are hundreds of different groupings of aboriginals. They don't all come from the same place, although they have been here about 70,000 years. And that is, uh, there was a concern that problems in the aboriginal community were getting so bad that they had to do something. They had to jump start it. Uh, they, They have problems with alcohol. They have problems with nutrition. They die sooner than other people. They commit suicide. In large race, they go to jail in a disproportionate number. So there was this concern that perhaps we should enshrine the first peoples in, in, in the constitution, use it as an advisory board, and then from there we go on to solve problems. And there was much talk of a treaty, a treaty that would uh, uh, recognize certain things, might even have reparations in the end of it. And um, it was a great failure for the Aboriginal leadership that sought it. Now, there were prominent Aboriginals who didn't think it was a good idea. Hmm. They thought it was concentrating too much power in the hands of Aboriginal leadership elites. They didn't want to do that. Uh, 60% of the country, nearly 61% of the country didn't think it was a good idea. Not just because it wasn't specific. It's just that uh, the majority of Australians are indifferent to these problems. Now, About 40 percent, 39 percent of Australians, 39.7 percent, spend a great deal of time acknowledging uh, uh, the aboriginals on their traditional lands. And they they go to to great lengths to acknowledge their cultural heritage and their knowledge and the things that they can pass on today. Uh, Sixty percent of Australians couldn't care less. And this tends to divide between two parties. Mm. Now, the Labour Party, which is the Progressive Party, and the Liberal Party, which is more like the Tories or the Conservative Party, uh, they're less concerned about it because, uh, well, technically the uh, Aboriginals have title to a lot of lands because of some uh, Supreme Court decisions or high court decisions made some years ago, technical. They have technical and and actual practical access to land. So some people say, well, we've, we've done enough. And keep in mind, Australia did not spring from some great Asian culture or the Enlightenment uh, mm. pilgrims who made it to the New World, Australia was a penal colony. It, it didn't, you know, people who came here weren't yeah. highly reflective. They're incredibly practical people, and yeah. they ran into this these ancient peoples here, and they ran over them like a truck to get to free lands. And you know, they were in the way. The way uh, the American Indian got in the way of the. Uh, uh, american settler of course the american settler uh, gave the american indian higher marks they regarded them as the sort of the noble savage here uh, uh, aboriginals have been treated very badly their children have been separated from them you know called stolen generations and the like and you know now, people tried to get them to conform okay. to their ways So, professor, uh, well the aboriginals are very strong people and and there's a lot of australians who are very alert to the importance of maintaining the cultural heritage and the independence in these people. And they thought that enshrining them in the Constitution was a beginning. It didn't solve any problems. Yeah. It was so, hoping to solve problems. Yeah. Professor, so the winner is on Let Saturday. me ask
2: you this question. Because you Go talk ahead. about this uh, sense of indifference um, for, for, for those people who have campaigned no to this idea or this particular proposal we are talking about. But on the other hand, I have noticed, say, these people, they say this proposal runs a risk of dividing Australia along the racial or ancestral lines and also say they say there is a lack of clarity and detail about the structure about this uh, proposed advisory body in the Constitution. Do, do you think these criticisms have a point?
7: Yes, you, you, you're right to point those out, and those are exactly what the complaints were. There was no specificity and that it was it drove a wedge uh, among the Australians. I mean, there were some Aboriginal leaders who said it, it raises issues of racism. Uh, a lot of ordinary Australians also said the same thing, that it divides us by race. You know how France doesn't see religions in, in their census It's the same way. And so uh, people thought it was divisive. Now, if you don't like something, you can think of a million reasons why you don't like it. But I'll, I'll tell you this, the, the number of Australians who did vote for it, Mm-hmm. The 39.7 uh, they, percent, they're grieving right now. A lot of uh, aboriginal communities and others are having a seven day grieving to get over these results They had, you know, they had hoped a great deal to get, get a great deal out of this and they invested themselves. Mm-hmm. And, and towards the end, the media reported some really nasty things that people had to say about each other. And, of course, the media's made a big case about this because, you know, it's one of these issues that, uh, it, that gets very close to the bone in Australia about race and class mm. and who gets up and who gets down and all the rest of it. So, and, you know, it was right in Australia's faces and they it was sort of an uneasy moment. We had early voting and, of course, most of the voting took place on Saturday. But for a lot of Australians... To enshrine the Aboriginal people into the Constitution forever, unlike the advisory committees that have come, have come and gone, it was just too much to ask. No. You know, it was uh, they mm-hmm. they 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 didn't get it, and you know when and the people who supported it were sort of rolling the dice here, hoping that it would solve a lot of other problems. We have no idea if that's true, but I do think the Albanese government is going to have to pay a very heavy price for this. It had invested a great deal of political capital in getting this up. It was one of the things that uh, Prime Minister Albanese had promised people during his campaign. So he looks foolish. Uh, some people say he should resign. I doubt that's going to happen. And, but it, it didn't work. And he's trying right now to explain it to people without insulting 60 percent of the people. You can't say, well, you know, it didn't get up because you're stupid. I mean, that's what he's trying to say. You know, you didn't get it. What he said was we had once in a lifetime opportunity. To solve a, a lot of great problems, and 60.7 percent of Australians said they weren't buying. Uh, they weren't buying that story. They didn't yeah. think it was a problem.
2: So thank you very much. That was Professor Joseph Syracuse, Dean of Global Futures, with Curtin University in Australia. Definitely, given the current situation over there in Australia, we have no idea when the next time will be when this particular issue will be put to a national vote. But thank you very much for joining us. You're listening to World Today. That's all the time for this edition of the program. Bye for now.